We're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 2. And I didn't set out this morning to offend anybody, but I apologize up front. The gospel, the gospel is an amazing life saving message that can transform every life in the building, but it is not without opposition. It's not without hard work. It's not without opposition. It's not without difficulty. And if you've been coming to this church any length of time, you know that I'm not a prosperity preacher. Like I want everybody to make a lot of money, but I don't think that comes just because you serve Jesus. Amen. I'm not a check off the box and God just blesses you just because I'm a realist when it comes to the gospel because I read the new Testament and, and they face difficult work and opposition. Amen. So we're going to talk about that. Nehemiah gives us a good example about that in chapter two. So why don't we stand to our feet in honor of reading the word. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter two, starting verse nine through through, I think, verse 20. You can find it on the screen. You can find it uh, on your phone app, on the Bible app, through the Hope Community Church app. You can find it all over the place. If you've got an analog Bible, you can get that one out. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 9, say amen if you're ready. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. You should underline that in your Bible. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people. Politics ain't changed much, has it? So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night. I and a few men with me and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the gate valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there, who were to do the work. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in and how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king that had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven, 
will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Father, we thank you this morning. Your word is good to us. It's beneficial, not only to our souls, but Lord, to our everyday life. Help us to hear the call of God on our lives this morning. Be able to understand what it involves and what you've called us to. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Just to recap a little bit of last week, we know that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He had a great job, great position. He was in the king's presence a lot, even in the queen's presence. And he had had a visit from his brother who had just returned from Jerusalem. We know in Ezra, the book of Ezra, that the temple of God had been rebuilt in Jerusalem, but the walls and the, and the gates that protected the city had, were still in ruins. Uh, there'd been a portion of them attempted to be reconstructed, but the most of it was still in ruins from, from decades, from over a century earlier when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had destroyed them. Nehemiah gets word from his brother that, that the city is still in disrepair and it, it wrecks him. He, he fasts and prays for days. We, we, we found out that he had never been sad in the king's presence before and he shows up the next time in the king's presence and he is, he is visibly shaken. And so much so that the king looks at him and says, what's, what's wrong with you? You're not sick. This must be sadness of heart. Tell me what's going on. And he tells the king, listen, from where I'm from, where, where my parents are buried, where, where, where my grandparents are buried, like it isn't disrepair still. It's a shame. And the king says, what do you want to do about it? Nehemiah offers up one of those, one of those silent under your breath prayers, Lord, you better help me now. I'm getting ready to ask for the, for, for a permanent absence. And so he says, if, see, if, if the king sees fit, would you let me go and rebuild the walls? And the king said, yeah, man, let's do it. So the king sends him with letters of recommendation. He sends him with officials, with horsemen. I mean, I mean, Nehemiah's got a little bit of an entourage rolling in. Uh, how many of you know if you're going to go do a big job, it's good to have a posse go with you? Especially with letters from the king, you know? So we pick up chapter two here. Nehemiah's riding in, and before he gets into the proper city proper, uh, he's met by some officials, Sanballat and Tobiah, who were the political officials of the region. And he instantly is met with some opposition. I think it was verse 11 that said, um, they were, they were upset that somebody had come to seek the welfare of the people. <laughs> you know, they're politicians when they're upset, when somebody's coming with a solution. So he shows up, he doesn't tell anybody. He, he, he tells the officials, Hey, this is, this is why I'm here. By the way, I've got these letters. I've got some guys on horses that can back up these letters, some officials from the greatest king the world knew at that time, the king of Persia. He sent him. And so Nehemiah is 
instantly aware that there's going to be opposition to what he's getting ready to do. So he ends up going into the city proper for three days and he doesn't tell anybody why he's there. Gets up in the middle of the night and he decides to ride around and assess the circumstance. And it was so bad that he couldn't even ride his horse in, into some areas. It said, he said the one area, it wasn't, it wasn't big, it wasn't, the animal he was on couldn't fit through it. So he makes an assessment in the middle of the night without even telling anybody. He's, he's, getting a, he's getting a raw view of what's happening. He's not getting a political view. He's not sitting in a conference room and, and letting the politicians tell him, you know, let the committee decide what should be happening. He's up in the middle of the night. After a long, long journey, he goes into Jerusalem three days and he's in the middle of the night inspecting the walls himself. Then I think it's verse 17, he gets the people together and he says, hey, you know what's going on here. All you people live here. He doesn't ridicule the politicians. He just says, you know the circumstance you're living in. Let's rise up and build this wall. Let's get this job done. Now, isn't it fascinating that they had, that, that there had been multiple, multiple groups of Jews come back into Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and yet the gates would still be torn down. The political people couldn't come up with a solution. And all somebody had to do was come in and go, hey, this shouldn't be this way. Why don't we stand up and do something about it? And everybody goes, yeah, it's a good idea. Hmm. It's going to take work, but you'd probably be shocked at how many people are willing to participate in a good solution. I didn't say a good political solution. I said a good solution. They stand up and they say, yeah, let's do it. Let's get this thing going. Finally, somebody wants to fix the wall. We have been waiting for a Nehemiah to come along. This is a good idea. And so they rise up and as soon as they rise up and, and you can imagine Nehemiah's like, ooh, this is going to be good. There's Sambalot, Tobiah, and now a new guy, Geshem. They're not even from there. They look at him and say, what are you doing? You think you're going to just come in here and, and make a speech, get everybody worked up? You think you're going to, this looks like rebellion. Are you rebelling against the king? Now, can you, can you feel the irony in this story? I love the Bible because God, God puts so much irony in there. Can you feel the irony there? Nehemiah is the only one with a letter from the king to do anything. He's standing in front of him. I have to believe that he showed them the letter when he wrote in. When him and the entourage came and met Sambalot for the first time, he's probably, Sambalot's like, hey, what are you doing? Read it, bro. Just read the letter. I don't even have to say anything. And these big dudes on horses are with me. But yet when you get in front of a group of people, Sambalot turns it into a rebellion. And Nehemiah is the only one there with the, with the authority to do it. He rides around the walls and he assesses the work to be done. You know what I found out in my life? A calling from God always includes a lot of work. I heard a guy say one time, the reward for good work is more 
work. Any business owners in the place? The reward for good work is more work. Amen. The only way you make more money is with more work. But the irony of our culture now is we think more work leads to more vacation. No, 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 no. Nehemiah did a good job with the king. He had favor with the king. And God said, hey, listen, you've got a passion to fix this. So your reward for being in a good position with the king is for me to now give you more work. You know what the problem with the American culture is? We complain when God blesses us. Because we think blessing should look like ease instead of work. But God is saying the reward for you doing a good job is for me to entrust you with more stuff to do a good job on. Do you remember the parable of the talents? Do you remember when, when he said, he who has been faithful over little will now be entrusted with much? Guess what much requires of you? More work. Do you know when I had a few things, I didn't have a lot of things to pay attention to or to take care of. Anybody remember life with no kids? It's easy. You get three kids and you call it a blessing. It's more work. They're expensive. They cry in the middle of the night. I don't even have to explain it to you. No, the blessing for being good with one kid is to get another one. (laughs) We have this thing all wrong. That labor is part of what God called us to. Amen? Part of the blessing of God in our lives is saying, hey, listen, you get more responsibility. You get, you get more things to accomplish. I'm entrusting you with more. So evidently, Nehemiah was operating his life in such a way in the current position he was in that God thought it would be a good idea to send him into a difficult spot where he could work harder than he's ever worked before. I don't think Nehemiah was a, was a mason, a brick mason on the side when he was doing the cup bearing thing. I don't think the king was like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I was practicing building walls. He was a cup bearer. But he was signing up for the call of God in his life, which in turn caused more work for him. Amen? Some of you already checked out. You're like, bro, I'm planning on vacation next week. I don't know what to do now. Go on vacation. You'll be fine. Find something to do when you're there. Don't just lay around. Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Both letters he writes to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. He says, you remember how hard we worked. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So he said, the thing that backed up our proclamation of the gospel is how hard we worked. We didn't look like lazy preachers. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse seven, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were there with you, nor did we eat anyone else's bread without paying for it. 
By the way, rule of thumb, if you take somebody out to lunch, pay for it. Fight over the bill. At least make it look good. He says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You hear a running theme in Paul's life? I'm going to work hard at this calling God's put on me. Ephesians chapter four, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. What's the change? The change is the thief now knows Christ. Let him labor now. There's going to be a switch in your mentality. Not a life of ease and a life of, of, of get it any way you can, but a life of labor. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Oh, wait a second. Paul just expanded our mentality about work. He said it's not work just to get what you want. It's work. Work enough to be able to support other things. To be able to give to others in need. So Paul... Paul's reinforcing it. We're finding it in Nehemiah. Do the work. What we talked about last week, the issue of suffering and injustice, the idea that in order to end suffering, somebody must suffer. Somebody must be generous. Somebody must do the work. If we're going to end suffering, if we're going to have an answer to injustice, then we have to have the work ethic required to affect the change necessary. A life of ease rarely produces meaningful change. Can you say amen? The life of ease. Can can I ask you this? When's the last time you went to the doctor and the the doctor said, hey man, your blood pressure's up, you weigh too much, cholesterol's through the roof, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah. I got a relationship with the... uh, uh, with the funeral home, I get a kickback every time. You know what I'm saying? Just keep doing what you're doing. No, 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 no. Any, any time there's to be any meaningful change, it requires what? More work. More work. It means you might have to get up and exercise. It might, it means you might have to change your diet. You might have to shop different. You might have to, you might have to buy different. It's going to require more work. So I need to, I need to also say something about this idea of calling and passion in your life. Because sometimes, sometimes, especially as an American culture, we're always negotiating how much work goes in with the return, return on investment. And sometimes we don't think it's worth the work because we're not seeing an immediate investment. Not, you know, we're not seeing immediate return and we're confused and we don't understand the opposition and all this things. So there's more, Lord, you just give me more work. Give me more. I started thinking about this in this sense. Um, when you look at the New Testament, you, you didn't see Paul get to the age of like 60 and go, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of done with this apostle thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to pass it on to somebody else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go enjoy myself in Rome instead of getting locked up. All the way to the end. When you look at the lives of the apostles, they were all the way to the end. No holes barred. All the way to the end. Look at your neighbor and say all the way to the end. All the way. Now, I'm not saying you got to clock in until you're 85 years old. I'm not saying you got to keep working like that. But they were all the way passionate to the end. I started thinking about the way we think about life in America. Um, we're always trying to find the balance, aren't we? The balance life. You know you can get on Instagram and, and pay people to tell you what balance looks like. I think I talked about that a little bit last week. Um, 
thought about when Beth and I first started dating. I, I didn't, I, I never looked at her once and said, listen, we need to have balance in this dating relationship. I can't see you too much. You know, I've got, I got to balance this out with work and exercise. And, you know, I can't be too passionate about you right now because after all, that could lead me to do dumb stuff. I can't, I don't, you know, we need to have a balance about how much time we spend together. Cause that's what everybody told me was healthy. Yeah. I pray to God that wasn't your dating experience. I pray that your dating experience was full of passion, biblical, not, not too far, but passion because when you meet somebody with passion, there is no balance. There's no balance with somebody with passion. Could you imagine a a dispassionate artist? When do you paint? Well, I've got a schedule. You know, I only paint from like one to two. It's very balanced. No, no, no. You don't get that. They paint all the time. They, they, when does a writer write? They write all the time. When does a, when does an artist do what they do? It's all they think about. When is a writer, a songwriter, write? They write every, every time they get an inspiration. They, now they talk into their phones and they, they're like, oh, that was, this is going to be a great song. No, there's no balance. But the idea has crept into the church that this God thing needs to be a balanced part of a, a, a day, a, a life that we can't be, you know, you don't want to be too passionate about Jesus as you look crazy. You don't need too passionate about a subject that it consumes your life because all of a sudden you're going to be out of balance and it's going to affect your family and it's going to affect this, it's going to affect that. And we got to, we got to just balance it all out. Well, here's what I'm telling you today. I would rather my kids be passionate than boring. I say this to our staff all the time. I'd rather have to pull the reins back on somebody than have to kick them in the butt every day. Amen. Anytime you get around balanced people, you're like, well, I'll try to, you know, I've got a schedule till Jesus comes back. And it looks like this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And it's, you know, it's kind of, it's balanced out. I've got an equal amount of time for everything. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Give me somebody that's passionate. That will stay up all night. That'll work harder than everybody else. That will let somebody get so deep. Something gets so deep inside of them that if they don't do something about it, nothing else matters. Give me somebody like that. That's willing to move. That's willing to work. That's willing to give. I want my kids. I wanted my kids to grow up seeing us pour our lives into something, no matter what happened. What are you willing to give your life for? And this idea of work, we're so impassionate, we're so dispassionate about it nowadays. Man, if I can some find somebody that says, this is my life's work, I know all I got to do is get out of their way. Just keep going. Hey, keep doing it. 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 When you're tired, keep doing it. When you don't think you got any more, keep doing it. When, when, when you get opposition, keep doing it. Just keep doing it because it's what he put you here to do. You're not going to run away from it. You're not going to, you're not going to ignore it. You're going to wake up and try to figure out how to manipulate your life to get to it. The church doesn't need more balance. We need more passion. 
The church doesn't need more vacation. We need more, we need more God. Put a, put a, something deep inside of us that we can't ignore anymore. Let me, let me have some sleepless nights about it. Now, I, I know, I told you before, I got a bed that tells me when I'm not balancing my sleep. I'm getting notifications on my phone. You need to sleep more. No, no, no. Scripture does not say that. Scripture tells me that when somebody's passionate about it, they get on their horse in the middle of the night and figure out how to fix it. The world does not need more Christians sleeping. The world needs more Christians staying up praying. Yeah. That was nice. The enemy, I told you last week, the enemy has duped us in to being dispassionate, to being just working like everybody else is. Paul said, we labor day and night. This gospel was worth every second, every ounce of sweat this gospel was worth. We labored. We didn't give up. I'm going to say this again. A life of ease rarely produces meaningful change. And we've been, we've been duped by prosperity that we can, that we can just get to a point where we don't have to do anything. And then all these good things will just happen. Everything I read in scripture tells me that a life passionately given all the way to the end is going to require labor right till our dying breath. And if there's any people pleasers in the room, this is going to make you really excited. Opposition is a part of doing anything meaningful. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem the Arab, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The truth is Nehemiah was opposed by these men every step of the way, even to the point of risking his own life. At at some point, we're going to get into this, some point in time, they were building the wall with swords on their sides because because they were sending men to attack them. They had to labor and protect themselves at the same time. So not only were they working hard, the opposition had become physical. The problem with the church today is we we're trying to be liked as much as effective as being effective. And I don't think there's a balance in that. Listen, scripture tells us be at peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. Can, can we all agree? Don't be a jerk. Look at your neighbor. Just tell him in the name of Jesus. Don't be a jerk. We could start there. We could be nice and polite and kind and caring and supportive and all those things. But when you give your lives passionately to the call of God, you will end up having to stand up for things that the culture doesn't like. And when the church rises up and offers a solution to a problem where politics has been making money off of it, I think this is being streamed then you were going to have a giant problem. You do realize that Nehemiah walked into a circumstance where the political powers of the day were making a living managing decline. 
They were managing the decline of people in Jerusalem, just managing it, not trying to fix it, not trying to do anything about it. How many places in the United States right now is that going on? They were managing the decline. And when Nehemiah walked in and said, we got to do something about it, they went, oh, you're, you care about the people? The irony is the church is letting people outside the church tell the church how to respond to things that the church is called to fix. So what happens is this, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem weren't even from there. So the guys who's, the guy whose ancestors were buried in Jerusalem comes to fix it and they go, you don't have any right here. What Nehemiah tells them is he says, hey, listen, the God, the God who created all this stuff is supporting us and you will have, you will have no part in the results. Church, can I say this to you? Don't be a jerk, but there will be, there will, there is coming a time where the church is destined to fix certain things in our culture, to, to, to rise up and offer solutions that will not go along with the idea of managing decline. Because, the, because God's purpose for our lives is to not manage the decline of people, but to, but to offer them life and life more abundantly. Amen? To offer a solution for anxiety, to offer a solution for, for suffering, to offer real solutions that fix things in people's lives, not manage the, not manage the decline. So why would we get concerned when people who don't read the Bible tell people who do read the Bible that the Bible doesn't work? It's like, uh, you ever been around anybody that's an expert on everything? Oh, don't you love those people? They're so fun. You could have a PhD in a subject. You get in front of them and you could say, da, 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 and they go, no, that's not going to work. Huh. You read the book, huh? Well, no, I just, intuition. You know. Oh, you're one of those. I bet you can't tell what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> I find it very curious why the church succumbs to the judgment of people who don't follow Christ or read the Bible. Why don't, if we read the Bible every day and submit our will to God, why do we, why do we care? But in a culture of likes becomes extremely difficult. In the culture where being accepted is the entrance card into a lot of things. The church is trying to straddle the fence and we're trying to go, we want everybody to like us, but we want to do the will of God. Well, I'm going to tell you that will make you crazy. I'm not saying don't be a jerk. Look at your neighbor, confirm it one more time in the name of Jesus. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. I'm not saying don't do dumb stuff. Don't, don't, don't just don't be a jerk, but there will become a time in your life. I remember this raising our kids. I remember sitting them down and telling them, listen, the Bible teaches us the way to live. And there are some things your mother and I are going to do and that you're going to do 
that don't square up with the other families that you're around. And that's just the way it's going to be with the Jones family. And we would actually say this. This is the way the Jones family does it. This is the way we do it. Well, why is that? Because I I got no other reason but the old nurture. The Bible tells me so. Because God's word tells me this is a way to live a full life. And so we're just going to do it. We're going to do it this way. We're not saying they're bad people. We're not saying, I wasn't telling them, oh, your friends are going to hell. That's not why we're doing it. Um, I wasn't saying stuff like that. I wasn't saying stuff like that. I was just saying, this is the way God has instructed us to live. We're going to treat everybody around us great. But we're not going to do certain things because we're going to be different. And they had to figure out Start telling them that when they were six months old or something. I'm like, hey, get this in early. They had to figure out as teenagers, okay, this is going to look different. Could be some opposition to the way we live. It's fine. But we're just doing things different. If the church could get that through our heads that we're preaching the Bible, we're not preaching culture. I'm not saying be a jerk. I'm not saying be an idiot. I'm just saying Nehemiah was there to do the will of God. And it was a good idea. It was good for the people. It was good for Jerusalem. It was good for the whole thing. And yet he had opposition from people that didn't care. From people whose, whose source of income was managing the decline. It's going to be more, more work. It's going to You're going to have opposition, more work and opposition. Doesn't this sound like a great thing to sign up for more work and opposition. The call of God on your life often brings more work and opposition. It just does. The call of God on your life brings more work and opposition. So this is, so I now want to teach you something very, very, very important. I want to teach you something about God's story because Nehemiah says, says a great thing here right at the end. He says, he says in verse 20, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants will arise and build. It's so important that he said it that way because this wasn't just Nehemiah's idea. This was God's story. This was God's story. This was God's deal. Just like it was God's deal to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. We talked about that last week a little bit. Just like it was God's idea to to send them to the promised land, just like it was God, God was writing the script. Now here's the problem with, with where we live today, how we view the Bible today. We view the Bible as this. I'm writing my story. How does the Bible benefit my story? Do you get this? This is how we read the Bible today. Okay, Lord, I'm having a bad day today. You know, it started off early in the morning. Didn't get my coffee. You know what that does, Lord. And so I'm going to look at the Bible and I'm going to figure out how the Bible can fix my life now that I didn't have my coffee. And now I've said some inappropriate things to like 3,500 people. So, so now I need the Bible 
to benefit my story. I'm right. Like I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm doing the, I'm doing the best life now and I'm doing the whole thing. And I just need the Bible. I need enough of the Bible to fix whatever is, whatever is wrong. And so I go to the Bible and I'm flipping through it and I find just a couple of verses. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I could apply that today. And most of the verses have to do with how you're right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. You know, like the Psalms where David's saying, kill all my enemies. You know, you're probably singing that on the way to work. Kill them all, Lord. This will be a great day. Kill you and you and you. You know what the reality is? The Bible is God's story. The Bible is God's story. And the correct way to read the Bible and apply it to our lives is to find out how then our lives fit into God's story. Oh, do you know anything about movie making? I was just talking with a friend yesterday. I hadn't seen it in a long time and he was explaining some of this to me. The, the thing about movie making is there's a director and then there's actors Typically, this is the way it works. And the director tells the actors what roles to play and how to act out scenes. Yeah, especially if you're a B actor, like not a great one, but maybe enough to do a sitcom. The actor doesn't get to tell the director, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not, that's not, that's not part of my role. No, no, no. The director says, this is what you'll do in this circumstance. And then the actor goes, okay, I'm going I'm to act that out the way you wanted me to. You see, the Bible is God's storyline over all humanity. The Bible is God's purpose for all humanity. The Bible is God's story of humanity doing it their way, trying to write their own script, and God coming and restoring that. Going, hey, listen, you tried to write your own script, and that didn't work real well. So now I sent Jesus to restore the movie. And now Jesus, now because Jesus, now we all can be restored back, back into right relationship with the director. Everybody getting it? So the right way to pray then is not God do what I want you to do, but God, how do I fit into your narrative? Amen. So when Nehemiah said the God of heaven will make sure this happens, he was saying, I've already prayed about this and I realize that I'm fitting into his narrative. And this ain't about me just getting up and working hard. This is about he's already written the script, bro. And if you're going to go against me, you're going against him because he's already given me all the authority, all the power, all the stuff that I need to do. And he's called me to this place to accomplish this. And it's got nothing to do with me. So the thing about it is when the church realizes it's not really about us, it's about us fulfilling the call of God in our lives because we're playing it out in his story. It takes all the pressure off, doesn't it? Hey man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm good with it, God. This ain't about me. I'm good with it, God. You know, when you get that in your head, you'll stop asking God, why'd you do this to me? 
Because we'll start praying things like this. It's your story, Lord. And I'm fine with the way you wrote it because you're perfect. You're good. You're for me. You're with me. You've never left me or forsaken me. You know what I need before I even ask of it. You said, if I seek you first, you'll supply all my needs according to your riches and glory. You, you promised me all these things. You're writing the best story for my life I could ever imagine. And I'm willing to play the role. And so when it requires passion, I can do it because he's empowered me to play the role. When it requires work, I can do it because it's, re- it requir- it's what's required to play the role. When it, requ- when it requ- requires me to go up against opposition, I can do it because I'm playing the role he's called me to play. He's uniquely equipped you to do what he's called you to do. We just have to understand that it's not about me. It's not about Lord. No, it's about God. What would you have me do today? What role do you have for me? I'm getting to play this out in your story. I've been invited to the greatest movie ever written. I am, I am part of it. You've, you've brought me in on the cast and now I get to play my role with passion and, and work and I get to have an impact on the people around me. Thank you, Lord. Lord, just thank you for letting me play a part in this, man. Thank you for letting me. And when you start praying that way, it will make, all the work will start making sense. The opposition will start making, the sacrifice will start making sense. Lord, this wasn't about me. This wasn't about what I was giving up. This was about the opportunity you were giving me. This wasn't about the work. This is about what you've done in my life. This is about you bringing me in. This is about you giving me a role. This is about you trusting me with this. I like Nehemiah. Hey, God sent us here and we're going to build this wall. We're going to build this wall. You can bet that. If we have to wear swords around our waist and fight you during the day while we're putting up the stones, we're going to build this wall. He's already written it down. He already said the wall is going to get built. So if you want to waste your time opposing us, that's fine. But this thing's going to happen because he gave me a leading role in this thing and I am not going to screw it up. This is my chance to play the lead role and I'm going to do it with everything I've got. And if you start looking at your life that way, that it's not about me and how God's going to help me, but it's about the role he's called me to live and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to fulfill that thing if it requires working day, night, sweating, if it requires all the passion I can muster, if it requires everything I got, I'm going to play the role he's called me to play. Amen. When we start praying differently, work will look different. When we start praying differently, opposition will look different. We don't, we don't have time to be messing around now. Amen. It's time for the church to stand up and respond the way people responded to Nehemiah. We're going to rise and build this thing. We're going to rise and do it. We're going to rise and play the role God called us to play. So why don't you stand up? 30 seconds, I want you to pray like that. I want you to ask yourself, what? What has God put in front of me? What passion has he put in my life right now that I can do something about, that I can have an effect on, that I can that I can play the role he's called me to play? What can I do about it right now? Father, we ask you. Lord, we're not looking for balance. We're looking for passion today. We're looking for to work all night. We're looking for it. The role you put us in, Lord, we want to play it out the way you scripted it. Lord, help us to have that today. Help us to know what it is and empower us to accomplish it. And Lord, we pray that our lives lived out well will bring you glory and honor. 
Lord, it'll bring other people to you. Lord, it'll fix what you put us on earth to fix. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. Come on, church. Can you give him praise and honor? He's good. Amen. Come on, don't live a life of balance this week. Go out and live a life of passion this week. And see what can be changed for the kingdom. Amen. Encourage somebody on your way out. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Same time.